On March 28, 2011, an elderly woman in a small village outside the Georgian capital of Tbilisi was digging in the ground with a spade looking for scrap metal when she severed an underground fiber optic cable and unwittingly caused an internet outage to large parts of Georgia and all of neighboring Armenia for about five hours. Dubbed the Spade Hacker, she was initially arrested and held for questioning before being released due to her old age. Today is March 6, 2016, and you're listening to InfoTrek. To InfoTrack. My name is John Kearns. I'm your host today, and with me I have two co-hosts, Derek Pokoroba and Mike Gossi. Derek, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is uh, Derek Pokoroba with the company now SigmaNet under a Converge One umbrella. Um, the director of enterprise networks for um, route switch wireless. Background is heavy architecture design for routing switching. Uh, CCIE for almost ten years now. Cool, Mike. How about yourself? Hey, everybody. I'm Mike Gossie. I'm also a member of SigmaNet, a Converge One company. Uh, I'm the director of practice management, and uh, my background has been largely collaboration-focused, but uh, kind of has touched you know, pretty much all facets, data center, end-user computing. Um, you know, If you name it, I've probably been involved with it at some point in my career. Cool. And my name is John Kearns, and uh, I am a hybrid engineer covering network and data center, also at SigMinute in Southern California. I work with these guys every day. So let's go ahead and jump into the news. News for this week, you know, close to this week, Oracle buys Ravello. For anybody that doesn't know, Ravello is a company that essentially does nested virtualization on top of public cloud offerings. So right now, I believe they support Amazon and a few other of the cloud providers, but they essentially run their own hypervisor on top of it and allow you to move your workloads over simultaneously. You know, uh, seamlessly running them either on one cloud and your own private cloud or multiple public cloud offerings. So uh, it, it seems like this is a this is a big play to try and up their cloud offering. You know, try and make it as easy and seamless as possible to move into it. Mike, what do you think of this? So I think it's actually pretty interesting um, given Oracle's attempt to kind of diversify here. Right, they bought VirtualBox or consumed the VirtualBox virtualization platform for desktops um, a couple of years ago, but haven't really done much with it. That you know we've seen in the public or really any attempt to monetize it. And, you know, they're also making endeavors into like the telephony space when they bought Acme Packet a few years back and some other things. So not really sure what the long-term play is, but it seems like they're trying to be sort of everything to everybody at this point, which is interesting. Yeah, it definitely seems like they're... uh... They're trying to go up against, you know, the likes of these big guys. I don't know. I haven't worked with anybody that's actually on Oracle Cloud. Have either of you guys worked? know anybody that, that's running in there? Not that we've run across. No? No. no. Yeah, Next on the list here is the Cisco SpringPath HyperFlex announcement that happened this week. So it sounds like, you know, Cisco is trying to go up against Nutanix, and uh, it's not really anything like their old Invicta storage systems, but uh, they are making their way back into the storage market trying to come up with a software-defined storage play. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's actually interesting. Um, I'm not surprised that Cisco is work, working in this path. We see a lot of customers really entertaining the idea of a hyperflex environment. Um, so I think it was only a matter of time before they did something along these lines, either with you know SpringPath or I know the other rumor was that they were just going to run with SimpliVity. But um, I think they made a smart move and they're positioning themselves to kind of maintain their 
growing dominance in the uh, the enterprise data centers. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good move for Cisco. Honestly, it, this space is really heating up, and I think you know, even if you look at you know a lot of integrator offerings out there, everybody's starting to add hyperconverged um, platforms to their space. EMC has actually now launched its second one. Um, which is called VX Rail, which is really built around uh, Evo Rail from VMware. Um, previously, they had VSpec Blue, which really didn't do anything. And obviously, we've seen SimpliVity and some other players pop up in this space. And uh, it was just a matter of time before Cisco got involved. So hopefully, this is a you know good addition to their portfolio. Yeah, it should be pretty interesting. Cool. So next on the list is uh, AT&T is going to start offering what looks like true internet TV. So up to this point, the only real kind of internet TV that we've had as far as like live broadcast and, and the, the stations that you're used to on cable TV is like Sling TV from Dish. They only really only have like maybe a dozen or two dozen uh, channels. AT&T looks like they're going to, after their acquisition of DirecTV last year, they're going to start offering like a full bundle of, you know, a few hundred channels on just a regular internet TV subs- uh, subscription. Seems like it could, it could be a pretty big deal for uh, anybody that's, you know, sort of cut the cable and gotten rid of cable TV or satellite or anything like that, you know, tired of paying. Yeah, this is actually great news. You know, for someone like myself who's been trying to kind of cut the core a little bit, this will be a great offering. It's going to definitely pave the way for other large, you know, kind of cable providers, you know, potentially uh, to kind of follow suit. And I think in the end, it gives us, the consumer, like way more options, right, as People are moving towards, you know, higher Netflix subscription, Amazon Prime, Hulu Video, yeah, definitely. even even things like Apple TV. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of this kind of movement, so bring it on. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I just I just actually this month paid my last dish bill, and, and I have a Roku, and I'm just completely getting rid of all, you know, I have like a Hulu subscription and a Netflix subscription, and that's it, man. I'm, I'm all for this kind of thing. This seems like, it looks like, it seems like all media is really going to be delivered over the internet rather than these. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a good thing, too, that's going to force service providers to upgrade their, their networks and their, you know, ultimately their delivery all the way to the house, which uh, has been needed in a lot of areas for a long time. Oh, yeah. Good yeah. point, yeah. Yeah, Netflix has been pushing that for a long time. Next news item here is a uh, a paper released from some students from Washington University on uh, extremely low power Wi-Fi endpoint technology, uh, essentially using RF backscatter to power device and mirror back remodulated information to a Wi-Fi router, essentially giving you the ability to build low power, low bandwidth Internet of Things devices and uh, with no battery systems, right? Powered completely off of the RF signal coming from your Wi-Fi router. This is uh, it's going to definitely be interesting, right? I think as we all know that batteries get smaller, devices get smaller, you know, power is the biggest issue we have, right? So this has a especially big play in like the IoT, right? Where you have dozens of sensors doing various things, you know, in a warehouse or a mining facility or oil and gas facility, you know, power or getting power to devices is always the biggest challenge. Even just from enterprise network, getting power is always a problem, right? So so anything that that will come along to kind of decrease that need will be, uh, I think, exceptionally important. Yeah, this seems like it could be really awesome for, you know, really low throughput things like sensors and uh, security systems for your house. You can just attach them to Wi-Fi, no battery needed, right? They'll yeah, run forever as long as, you have, as long as you have a Wi-Fi router that's putting out enough power. Seems like it could definitely bring about a completely different type of, uh, of market for Internet of Things devices. And it could even pave the way for a true, you know, wirelessly powered type device in the future. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's, uh, I think those are great thoughts. I think the only thing that's a little bit scary is trying to support stuff like that remotely, right? It's, if yeah. there's no power, that means there's no LED on the thing when it's not connected. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see yeah. how that's going to work. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not even enough power to run an LED, probably. 
I think it's, you know, it's, it's on the order of like tens of microwatts of power, which is just, it's incredibly small. Crazy. But yeah, it's definitely could be harder to support, but it seems like it would be more technology targeted at dumb devices with very, very few kilobits of throughput, things things with very simple uses. That's why I was saying like window and door alarm systems and things like that, where you can run them all off of Wi-Fi and uh, you know, never have to change out a battery and uh, and not have to use some other band for communications back to the central system. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of similar to like almost like passive RFID type tracking, right? We have a small tag sitting on a crate or a box and as it passes through like an agitator kind of wakes up um could be kind of a similar use case to that yeah yeah cool all right so today our topic is redundancy we're going to go over just some of the principal pieces of uh of infrastructure redundancy and uh derek can you explain what is redundancy and why is it important well, redundancy is important right because you know as we for guys like us that are in networks every day and helping customers build networks you know essentially you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket right so if you think about it you know, if, if your business is critical and your apps, for example, make you money, you want to have some level of redundancy to provide, you know, a backup or failover mechanism for that infrastructure, right? And then, of course, we can dive into the varying levels of redundancy, what's too much redundancy, um, because it's not, it's not one of these things where you say, all right, I'm going to throw tons of redundancy at something and make it so complex that it's impossible to troubleshoot or maintain and operate. So there's definitely a balancing act um, that comes down to it, um, you know, whether it's with regards to the server platforms, the storage, the infrastructure, pretty much everything in modern networks have some level of redundancy uh, to some aspect. Yeah, it's it's all about uptime, right? So yep. five you know, nines, right? Right, yeah, five <laughs> nines. And, uh, you know, every minute that you're down is Monday on the drain. Yeah, you know, just like those Armenian telcos, I'm sure they took a big hit in their pride when one woman chopped the fiber cable in the ground in half and uh, took down the internet in their entire country for a half a day. If they would have had some more redundancy built into that, they uh, probably wouldn't have had an outage at all. Uh, so when is when is it necessary to use redundancy and when is it sort of appropriate to not use it? It seems like in, in networks that we work on nowadays, it's it's just sort of the de facto standard. We in, we implement redundancy no matter what. And few people ever question that, right? You Every device or system you put out there, you put out in a pair. But, you know, when do you need it and when don't you need it? What do you think, Mike? So I think generally speaking, um, you know, my rule is if there's somebody's life at risk, uh, when the, whenever the thing is down that you're potentially going to make redundant, that's important. Always have it, always consider it. Uh, but you know, more on a, you know, business minded kind of uh, approach to it. I, I try to take the, the tact that if, if we can quantify the, the loss of money or loss of, you know, customer service, satisfaction, whatever it is, and some dollar amount, uh, we sort of weigh that against the cost of making the system redundant. And, uh, you know, it's usually a pretty easy point to make a decision on, right? If you're losing money by the minute, if your systems are offline, it's probably going to make sense to make them redundant, especially with things like network equipment today. It's so cheap to put in redundancy in most everything we do because it's just the standard now that, you know, I think you'd be hard pressed in a lot of cases to, to find a scenario where it really doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, yeah, the only thing I've ever really seen that I've agreed with where redundancy didn't make sense is in something like maybe a DR system, right? I've seen uh, I've seen uh, disaster recovery data centers stood up with, you know, with no redundancy built in because they're essentially a redundant component to something else that's running. Yeah. And I think that the, the bigger thing too is it doesn't always have to be the most traditional form of redundancy, right? I, I think a lot of it is just thinking 
thinking through more, um, you know, from an architecture standpoint, how can we continue to do business? And, you know, that may be in a small branch or a location office where we're looking at, hey, do we really need a redundant internet circuit? Do we really need um, a redundant router at this location when really the majority of my work is probably done internet connected and everybody's got a cell phone in their pocket that they can tether to, um, you know, for a few hours while we get hardware replaced or do whatever we need to do with the service provider to get things back online. So just kind of thinking through some of that stuff, I think, you know, it doesn't always have to be a one-to-one on the systems. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, like the other thing too is not so much redundancy per se, but also operating from either hard down or like a reduced capacity. So, you know, Mike, like you're saying, it's, it's very common that, you know, you can have a system where it's not maybe going to be a hundred percent redundant, but it's going to be operating at 50% capacity. And sometimes that's enough to kind of keep the business running um, for the most part. So Derek, how is redundancy usually implemented? What, what are the ways that we configure these systems to operate properly in, you know, device pairs or, or clusters or however it may be? You know, how, how is it usually implemented on a network or for as network infrastructure or server infrastructure, that sort of thing? So some of the most common things that we see, you know, designing a lot of uh, large scale enterprise networks. So if we kind of take it from a, a LAN perspective to start, it's a pretty common starting point, right, is you can kind of start with starting with the switching there's a couple different ways to go about it you know some people live and breathe by chassis based systems right where technically a chassis based system kind of inherently has redundancy built in you could have dual supervisors multiple line cards multiple power systems things like that um, and then there's kind of the opposite approach to that where you have kind of a stackable solution right where you have switches that kind of cluster in the back plane to give that level of redundancy um, but of course, then starting from there, you want to also be aware of, okay, how's everything connected, right? Sure, I can have, you know, multiple line cards, but if I uplink all my, you know, server uplinks or fiber uplinks to one line card and that thing fails or one switch, then guess what? You didn't really solve your redundancy problem, right? So it's really kind of thinking about, you know, from an A and B type standpoint, you know, active standby typically in the LAN side, getting up to that kind of, you know, routing layer, you know, dual cores, Chassis-based cores, you know, VSS, VPC type stores, you know, cores in Cisco land, um, and then again, kind of driving that into, you know, a WAN side, right, where you have maybe dual expensive MPLS links or blended hybrid type internet MPLS links, doing some type of traffic load balancing or traffic sharing. So you can kind of see where it's very important to kind of methodically think all the way through from the end user device all the way up to the stack, right, and in you know, you can almost get to a point where you try to solve for so much redundancy that it becomes just too complex. Because at the end of the day, yeah. your laptop or device plugs into one switchboard or one Wi-Fi router. So, Mike, give me some examples of some of the challenges of implementing a redundant network or voice system or server system, things like that. Yeah, so I think uh, definitely, you know, in in the voice world uh, where I've spent a lot of time is it, it's a little bit more complex usually because you're usually dealing with multiple different layers of redundancy, right? So in a typical IP-based phone system, you've got redundancy at the application layer, then you've also got redundancy at the network layer that we're relying on, and, and then inside the, the locations or the LAN um, and then out across the WAN as well as all of these sites, you know, are really, it's really meant to work as one phone system or one communications platform and they're often geographically spread out. Um, so looking at, you know, do I have diverse paths, uh, to my carrier? Do I have, uh, you know, redundancy at my route, my routing edge in my networks at each one of the sites where, you know, either the applications are served from or the users are fr- uh, located at? Um, it's usually, you know, very difficult to say, hey, I'm protected all the way down and I don't have a single point of failure anywhere. 
Um, which, which really brings up, you know, what's your, what's your strategy right around making that redundant. And a lot of times we do kind of this, you know, one-to-one redundancy in a lot of the networking equipment. And then we may have, you know, an end-to-one, um, strategy around the applications themselves and how those are made redundant, uh, in, in that space. So I, I think there's, there's different, you know, facets of it. Um, when it comes to providing an application that's that's fully redundant, uh, that, that's relying on your network to transport that information that it's using. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Implementing a redundant network definitely does involve you know buying some capacity that you're never going to use, or at least you never intend to use, right? And that's one of the bummers. It's almost like you know I need reliable transportation, so I'm going to buy two cars and I'm going to keep one of them in the garage all the time until the other one breaks down. There's a big movement in infrastructure to try to create larger redundant clusters of systems so that your when you have n plus one, right? N is your n is the number of nodes that you need to operate at a full capacity, and plus one is that you know that one extra node that you add on top so that you can tolerate a one node failure, right? And when you have systems that you really only need one device to operate, well, you end up buying two and never using the uh, the capacity of that second device or second system that you have. But if you buy 12 of them and you need 12 to operate and you buy maybe instead you buy 13 or 14, you're uh, you're definitely wasting a lot less capacity. Yeah, a good example of that is, is, is easy to understand. It's typically like a firewall, right? You know, no one ever really buys from a firewall. They buy two. They run them in active standby. And like you said, one's just sitting there kind of humming along, doing some keep alives until something fails over. Um, the board actually takes over, right? So there's definitely been also a lot of shift in technologies to kind of virtualize that, you know, with things like clustering, VPC, VSS, you know, another, as well as others to kind of say, all right, if we have two boxes, let's try to get some form of you know, capacity out of each one of them. Um, and still provide a failover if something does happen. So there's definitely a big shift in that on the kind of enterprise side, whereas on the server side, you know, it's kind of more about treating your, you know, servers, if, if you will, as cattle versus pets, right? Where you kind of, like you said, you have things spread out more evenly. You know, if you have a server die, okay, no big deal. Everything kind of picks up the capacity and, and starts shoving along as usual. What about like nested redundancy, right? So I buy, if I buy some servers, I'll buy two servers, but each one will have two power supplies for power redundancy, right? And, and so we're sort of, you know, or, or I know in enterprise networking, you'll buy like a chassis switch with two supervisors and then you'll buy two chassis switches and, and, you know, create like a virtual switch out of those. Derek, what do you think of, of nested redundancy? Does it seem, does it seem like an inefficient use of resources or does it usually seem pretty necessary? For the most part, you know, in, in, in a common network, you know, again, talking from like more of the enterprise kind of land land side, I would say, you know, if you have like, like, like one of the examples you mentioned was a chassis, right? You know, I, I can almost argue till we're blue in the face about how solid a chassis is. Um, you know, I've actually only ever seen one chassis fail. And that was what I plugged one into a, a bad power cable and it blew up in my face. So it blew up the entire chassis. But for the most part, you know, a dual supervisor, dual chassis uh, or dual power supply chassis will almost never go down. Right. Other than like line cards or ports or things like that. So, you know, if we start getting into two chassis with dual power supplies and dual soups, is it overkill? Yeah, probably. Right. I mean, there's there's definitely some pros and cons. There's also then different interactions. Right. Like, let's say that. You know, there, there's a bug where if the primary soup and chassis one fails, but, you know, the secondary soup doesn't kick in and it kicks the failover anyway, then what was the point? Um, so it, it's kind of this balancing act again of complexity versus easy, easy to use, right? So 
typically I would generally say that the power is pretty easy to solve. You know, generally speaking, power supplies aren't really, you know, expensive and it's really easy to kind of have a true AB type blended power, assuming your building supports it or generator or things like that. And I think sometimes those nested redundancy features of a solution, um, maybe there to aid you in just regular maintenance as well, right? I oh, mean, yeah, that's if, true. If you've got a system that's in a data center that you don't necessarily control the power schedule in, they may be connected to two different power circuits and for, you know, higher data centers will do maintenance on their power systems every so often. And you don't want your, your switch chassis to go offline when they take one of those circuits down. They're not going to take them both down intentionally at the same time, but they are going to tell you, hey, tough luck. This is going down at this time for 15 minutes, and you're just going to have to deal with it. So uh, having those things there may not necessarily be to prevent a failure in the hardware itself, just to prevent a failure in the environment or allow you to do maintenance um, you know, with, with zero downtime. Yeah, that definitely makes a good point, right? Uh, being able to uh, to take something offline for maintenance uh, or, or even take something take some resource away like power or network, a network connection, right? If you need to move a wire from one port to another and you need to unbundle it from some other stuff, being able to unplug one link out of a server and have it fail over to the other one is, it's definitely preferred over having, you know, a single server that you have to take completely offline, take that node out of the cluster and then just to move a cable around, right? That nested redundancy does definitely give you some, it definitely gives you some convenience. Fortunately, we've seen it that way too, right? Where uh, you have a, a nice messy rack, right? And the cables are all intertwined and there's no way to kind of safely unplug it. And if you have the dual power supplies, you can kind of move one around and kind of octopus the cable through and get get the server free. Yeah. Yeah, but we don't we don't have any of those messy data centers <laughs> no. that we work at. No, no, <laughs> those, are, those are the ones other people build. So, Mike, once it, once you've implemented this redundant system, you have to prove that it's redundant in some way or another. How do you usually go about testing systems like that? Well, I mean, I think any good test plan really starts with writing things down, right, and really going through the functional scenarios that you're trying to protect against. I mean, there's usually a reason why you uh, built the system with some sort of redundancy within it, whether that's, you know, upgrading code on one of the two supervisors in a modules, modular switch or being able to remove power from one system uh, or one side of a system and ensure that it keeps running uh, against an environmental failure like we were talking about earlier. Uh, just really kind of walking through those scenarios, writing out your tests and, and, and kind of going step by step methodically around it. Um, you know, it's always great when you're implementing things. It's always typically a good thing to do that before it's in production, in my experience. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's another key that a lot of people rush to, to production and then they go, well, we hope it stays up when it needs to, uh, like we planned. But, you know, that, that always needs to be part of the implementation process and really having all those tests wrote out so that we understand what we're doing and how we're simulating it. So that when it doesn't work, we know we've, you know, we can kind of check off our bases and did the things that we expected to happen during the failure happen. And it's a lot easier to troubleshoot after the fact as well when you've got that sort of baseline to rely on. Oh, yeah, definitely. Derek, how about you from an enterprise networking perspective? How do you usually go about, you know, if you've you've built your whole network with, you know, two device clusters everywhere. How do you usually go about testing this redundancy to make sure it's true? Yeah, this is the definitely the, the, the fun part of the projects, right? You know, you spend all this kind of due diligence building it out, doing some initial testing, and now it's time for the real deal. So like Mike was saying, it's definitely, you know, required to kind of have this game plan or run book of the various testing scenarios, right? So I've kind of seen both sides where testing scenario can be as simple as, all right, I'm going to unplug the power of this router and see what happens. Did everything still function? Great. Then you kind of move into unplugging various links. So 
It's also, you know, testing failover, but also fail back is key. We've seen a lot of scenarios where the failover tested great. And then for some reason, there was some other little glitch or something where you, where you went to fail back, you had issues. Um, in my previous life, when I was working at the end user on the enterprise side, you know, we would also test things quarterly and bi-yearly, right? So you have like a major DR scenario where we tested everything, right? Not just the network, but testing the apps, the databases, all the call control, everything. And then, you know, there's always some scenario where, hey, maybe a firewall rule got out of sync from six months ago or it didn't get entered and all of a sudden you're black holing traffic. I mean, we've seen that more times than we probably like to admit, but it's it's definitely out there still. So it's very you know important to have that, you know, testing scenario and of course to maintain testing on an ongoing basis, which a lot of people don't do unfortunately. Yeah, I definitely I see that very infrequently in uh, in enterprise systems is doing that quarterly or bi-yearly test where you know you're going to fail over to your DR you're going to make sure that you know the process that it actually works properly and that way you sleep better at night right knowing that if your primary data center burns to the ground well you know we know the process to flip everything over and uh, and we know that once we run through this process, it's actually going to work rather than just saying, well, you know, I, I think it's going to work and, you know, we'll uh, yeah. we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And it's it definitely seems like a more than just oh, I tested it six months ago and it worked then. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's one of the primary indicators of whether you have a good CIO or not. Right. It's uh, is, is whether you have practices and procedures like that to test things on an ongoing basis It's like. But does the guy sleep well at night because he knows that things are working once a month or once a quarter? Or does he pour Pepto-Bismol on his cornflakes in the morning because he's getting <laughs> ulcers worrying about all this stuff losing sleep, right? Yeah. yeah, That's a litmus test right there. Maybe a good topic for a future show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Awesome discussion. Thank you for your input on the topic. Uh, how about uh, – how can people find you guys on the internet? Derek, do you have like a blog or uh, you're active on Twitter or anything like that? Go ahead and plug your social media. Sure. Thanks, John. So for the most part, uh, don't do a lot of tweeting. I spend a lot of time over at uh, Packet Pushers. Um, I do some blogs over there as well as going to start blogging over on LinkedIn. So uh, you can find me on uh, those two sites. Cool. Mike, how about you? So you can find me on Twitter, probably a little bit more active than anywhere else. Uh, my Twitter username is just at Aussie, my last name, A-O-S-S-E-Y. Or you can find me at uh, Aussie.net, uh, spelled the same way, obviously, uh, where I have a very infrequently updated blog. But uh, hopefully, well, that'll get better in the future. <laughs> yep, cool. And my name is John Kearns. You can find me on Twitter at Packetsar, or I also blog on Packet Pushers. I have an antiquated blog out there that I haven't updated in a while, but all my new stuff is there. Thanks for listening, guys, and have a good one. So, did you the the um, story of the day part? Um, did you have a chance to like Google that or anything? No, but it sounds uh, sounds pretty funny. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, I actually remember when it happened. So, really? Uh, I'm really familiar with the story. Yeah. She was really? like going to get jailed and stuff yeah. in Georgia, right? Awesome. Yeah. yeah I just saw it. Like I, I found it on like uh, some, some site a while back and I thought it was really interesting. I thought it would be a good story to add. I want to, I was going to, you know, on the outline, I wanted to try and start with the story. So I thought that'd be an interesting one, especially if we're going to do That's, that's what made me want to do redundancy is I thought of that story and I'm like, Oh, what if we do like a redundancy topic?